What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. James Layfield, welcome to the ND Hackers podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're the founder of a company called ClearFind. It's a SaaS business, software as a service, which I think is extremely hard to do nowadays. It's kind of like every engineer's dream to build some software that, you know, you put it out there and it's in the world and now all your customers are using it and they're clicking buttons and they're getting emails, notifications and paying you money every night while you're asleep <laughs> or you're making tea or you're doing whatever you want. Like software is awesome, but it's so crowded. So many people are doing software as a service businesses. It felt like there were no more ideas left in this space, you know, five, six years ago, let alone a couple years ago, three years ago when you started ClearFind. And yet you've gotten to this place today that's amazing. You know, I go to your website and you're clearly crushing it. You have some really big brand name customers, like you're selling to Airbnb, you're selling to Zoom, you're selling to Slack. I just want to say that's awesome. I'm curious about, you know, how you feel about your progress so far. Like, where is ClearFind and are you happy with, with where you've gotten to? That is a beautiful introduction to that. So thank you. I uh, appreciate it. So, like any journey, especially an entrepreneurial journey, it is always easier when you're where you are, when you look back on what you had to go through to get where you are. Uh, and so it's been a long journey, this one. So I, I've had I've had many businesses, so I can talk as a sort of serial founder, serial entrepreneur. I think this is my 14th or 15th business, so probably more than most people ever do. And um, I've done it in every sector from uh, fintech to VC, from in this latest one, SaaS to property, you name it, I've done it. Um, and so I've got an interesting, uh, interesting perspective. And ClearFind is a really beautiful, beautiful business. I, I love what we've created. And as you say, there is definitely a sense that everyone's trying to to create something where you can go to sleep at night and you're making yeah. money. And that is a sort of very beautiful idea of what a SaaS business might be like. It's, it's never very alluring. Like um, <laughs> but the realities of, of ClearFind... We set out to do something that is unique. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, and listeners, email in if this is not true. Um, we are the only people in the world that are doing what we're doing. Now, that sounds like an insanely ridiculous overclaim. And the reason I know it isn't an overclaim is because of the people that we're talking to uh, out in the world in terms of potential clients, people in POC with us, and clients. The, the types of conversations we're having with them mean that if there was someone else doing what we're doing, the conversation would go in a very different way. But what normally happens is they are over the moon to hear from us and they're excited that we're able to solve a problem that they've not been able to solve until now. So what on earth is ClearFind? So what ClearFind is, it's about understanding the software you have at a fundamental level in terms of what the software does. So uniquely, we have a data set that we've spent a lot of R&D working out how to gather on the features of different pieces of software. Nobody else has that data set. Gartner doesn't have it. G2 doesn't have it. Accenture doesn't have it. Deloitte doesn't have it. Google doesn't have it. Nobody has it because for whatever reason, people haven't bothered or wanted to look at that level of granular detail. Uh, and so we went out into the market and decided to uncover this 
crucial piece of information, which is it's all very well knowing that you have a software, but if you don't know what it does at a feature level comprehensively, you can't strategically understand how that fits within your business and your priorities and your requirements. So we did that work. We are out in the market now. As you say, we've got some amazing traction with some amazing clients. And interestingly, some of the world's largest consulting firms are now using our tool to do this work for them, for their clients, because it's so much more effective than the way it's been done to date. Uh, I got a few questions. First of all, do you... Do you share like revenue numbers or like ballpark revenue numbers? Is that something you're comfortable sharing? Or is- At this stage, um, we are not publicly sharing that information. And it's more because, and up until now, I funded the business myself. Uh, and so it's been a really interesting journey for that. And I, I would definitely say to people who are looking at starting, funding the business yourself creates lots of interesting challenges. One, obviously, you're spending your own money, uh, which is one challenge. But what's really interesting is the VC world is very much a game to some degree. And if you're in the game, you can play the game. And when you're outside the game, they don't want to let you into the game. Uh, And so they don't really love it when you fund it yourself. What they would much (laughs) rather you do is to get their money. Uh, And so I think there is an interesting lesson there, which is if you want to play the VC game and you want to grow your company with VC money, which for some companies makes a lot of sense. And for my company, I think it will make sense. Don't put loads of your own money in to start with because they are not loving it. So um, I've put in around $3 million of my own money, which is obviously a lot of money. And I'm obviously, <laughs> I'm obviously quite committed to this project. But it's been really interesting talking to VCs because they're like, well, you've bootstrapped it. It's like, yeah, $3 million of bootstrapping. How much are you going to invest with us? We'll put a million in. So what, a third of what I've put in? Yeah. Okay. And I've bootstrapped it. It's just such a weird conversation. And so... um. At the moment, because we're literally, as we speak now, fundraising, and we're in a really interesting position for fundraising because of these dynamics. One is we've gone after a problem that no one else had solved. And so it's a hard problem to solve, and we solved it, but we had to spend the money to solve it. And I'm not sure that VC money would have been patient enough with us because we didn't even start selling till last October. So for three years, we didn't even try and make any money. We weren't going to market at all because we had to crack the problem. We cracked the problem and then went to market. Uh, and, and so right now we're doing that fundraising thing. And so any VCs listening, give us a call. <laughs> We've got something special. Um, but revenue numbers at the moment, we're just not declaring. Okay. That makes perfect sense. And I have a thousand questions I want to ask you about putting $3 million of your own money into this business. You know, why are you so convicted? How do you even have $3 million put into the business? Uh, but maybe we'll get to that eventually. And maybe the best way to start is like at the beginning. You said that you started 14, 15 businesses. How many of those would you consider to have been successful? And how many of those did you did you bail on? It's, success is such an interesting question. Like, I mean, obviously, the, the simple metric could be monetary success. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, a limited number that have been very successful in terms of how much money they've made. But what I found is more that by doing this, by going through this process and learning lots of different aspects of business and learning what I can do and what I can't do and learning lots of different problems and how to overcome them or not overcome them, you become a much more well-rounded individual in terms of each project builds on the last. And so where I am now with ClearFind, ClearFind wouldn't exist if I didn't have one of my previous businesses, which was um, we created the world's largest um, I suppose, innovation laboratory for fintech. It's called RISE. 
We've been doing it for nearly 10 years now. It's in partnership with a bank called Barclays. And that has been a phenomenally successful project globally. It's the biggest in the world. We've been in seven different countries. Uh, it's been an amazing asset to the bank. and It's been a really valuable thing to do. And that helped me do this. In fact, I wouldn't have come up with the idea of Clearfine without that. But that business came out of another business I did in the UK, which was um, a co-working business, which I would never have thought would have happened. But I basically created the first co-working business in the UK. Uh, Google at the time wanted to do something called um, Google for Entrepreneurs. And they wanted to create something called Google Campus. There wasn't anything called Google Campus back then. Uh, and then um, they came to me and asked for our help in creating this thing called Google Campus, which we then, as as my then co-working company, helped them design and build. So we, we operated the first ever Google campuses. They're now all over the world. But because of that, then Boris Johnson, who's now the Prime Minister of the UK, but at the time was the Mayor of London, his office recommended that Barclays Bank speak to me right. because of what we'd done for Google. So it's such a bizarre like web. It's like a never-ending of, of, set of dominoes that fall into each other exactly. and set the, the next one going forward. Absolutely. So, so all these things weirdly link back together, um, although you wouldn't have thought so on the surface of it. And what's your background? Because I'm curious, like, what kind of person decides to be an entrepreneur who pushes through, you know, dozens of businesses that may or may not succeed monetarily, but feels optimistic about going on to the next one. Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family? Did you have friends who were doing this? Well, it's interesting. So there's three, I say three things to, to note. So one of the things that's interesting is um, there was a university um, that was doing a study into the way that business leaders think and particularly entrepreneurs think. Uh, and so I was part of that study and they did a um, fMRI scan. So you would lay in the MRI machine and they would be doing things talking to you and then you'd be responding. They'd be watching in real time what your brain did. And what they found, which is quite interesting and plays to what you said, is that the, my brain and the brains of entrepreneurs tend to not hear the word no. And so when, <laughs> when someone says something to an entrepreneur uh, where the answer should be no, a different part of the brain fires. And they've actually proven it. So it's not like a theoretical thing. It actually happens. And this whole area fires up. There's like no chance that this is going to work out, um, which is fascinating. So that's interesting. But to dive back into my past. So I'm from a small working class town in Yorkshire um, called Hull. Um, it's around, it's about a population of about, I think about 560,000 people now, but back then it was a little bit less. Uh, and my dad, he was an auto electrician. So he worked for himself and he fixed the electrics on cars when humans could do that. Uh, and my mum was like, um, I don't know, like a bit of a wheeler dealer. And she would do everything. She was a hairdresser. She used to sell clothes. She used to sell perfumes. And I remember one summer, my sister and I would be sat in our front room and we'd have three buckets in front of us. And my mum had somehow got hold of these plugs so the sockets that you have on, on, the, on electrical appliances. And these plugs were illegal. And so we were then stripping them for the parts. So we put in fuses in one box, brass in another box. And it's just like, so, so my experience of being um, a child was very much, I mean, entrepreneurial was one way of looking at it, but it was, I suppose, in a way to a degree, it was like, if, you work in a, if you're a working class family and you haven't got much money, you do whatever you can to make money. And my mum was really good at that. Uh, and so I suppose in a sense, that was a spark. And then the third thing was, I grew up in sort of Margaret Thatcher's time uh, and she was really interesting in terms of like promoting the idea of an individual as a business, uh, a driver. And so particularly Richard Branson was held up as a, 
a symbol of a new economy. And for me as a child, and I think for the British people at large, Richard Branson and the Virgin Group was a really exciting, sexy thing. And so there's this guy with a beard who wears sweaters and he's making loads of money, he's doing cool things. And so I aspired to be like Richard Branson. And funny enough, I ended up working for him and it was actually working for him that made me decide I could do this myself. Because I thought, Richard Brunson, you're great, but I can do this myself. So he was a beautiful <laughs> catalyst in many ways. I love that. There's something that's, that's so real and this concept of a role model where we're all just like people trying to figure out like, you know, who are we and what is our place in the world? And we look at other examples, especially when we were kids. Like, okay, well, who who else do people respect? Who else do people look up to? And when you have these figures, like for me in the 90s growing up, it was Bill Gates. Uh, I was a computer nerd. He was a computer nerd. The adults around me told me, oh, you know, one day you can grow up and be like Bill Gates. So I'm like, okay, that's who I aspire to be. I guess that means I should be an entrepreneur and create my own yeah. thing. And it's, um, you know, I wonder today, you know, like they, they do surveys of Generation Z, like the latest group of kids. And they're all like looking up to YouTube stars and TikTok stars. Uh, those are their heroes, you know. I'm not sure there's as many entrepreneurial heroes. There aren't as many people who are being propped up as this is somebody you want to be like, you know, they're, they're people like Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos who are like, for all intents and purposes, like demonized, you know, and then you occasionally have the Elon Musks, but it's, it's, it's something I hear time and time again, where people can very easily identify. I had this role model growing up who did this extraordinary thing and who other people respected. And so that's what set me on my course. And then the second half of your story is, oh, I found that they were actually human and they're not superhuman and I'm a human. So that gave me a lot of confidence and maybe I can do something similar. You know, I don't have to be the superhuman larger than life person in order to do something similar to what my heroes did. Did you ever have a point where you thought you were going to just go on the sort of normal path that you were going to go to school, get a job, work a nine to five and, you know, not start 15 companies? And I started life actually in advertising. And so actually, when I, when I grew up in the 80s, I wanted to be a stockbroker because in the 80s, that was a cool thing to do. Um, it, I don't think it's anymore. I don't think it exists anymore, probably as a job. Uh, anyway, so um, I didn't get to do that. And then I wanted to work in advertising because I love the creative energy of advertising. I love that. Again, I suppose in the early 90s, late 80s, it was very much a thing that people were sort of, it was very, like advertising was a gigantic, sexy industry as it has been for a long time. Not so much now, I don't think. Um and so I wanted to work in advertising. So I got my first job in advertising, but I found, I don't know, I suppose I found working for other people a challenge. Um, and it was through that experience of working in advertising that I got to meet uh, and work for Branson. So one of the companies I worked for, which is a very large company, they call Omnicom. They're one of the biggest media companies in the world, uh, media buying, planning agencies, creative agencies in the world. Uh, or groups and um, they had Virgin as a client and I then got to work on Virgin uh, as their whatever account manager media planner they were then looking for someone to be a brand director and I was in my 20s I was like I, I know the perfect person I emailed I know the perfect person it's me uh, and so um, I got the job which is amazing and so in my early 20s I was working as a brand director for Virgin and then Again, in my early 20s, I was a managing director of one of these Virgin companies. But interestingly, um, it was a it was a website. So it was a it was called virginstudent.com. Ironic name, but in Britain it seemed to make sense. It was it was a precursor to Facebook. Um, and so back in the day, there used to be a website in the US called College Club. It was and again, that was a precursor to Facebook. So before MySpace, before Facebook, there was College Club. It was the it was it was the biggest student website in the US. And back in the day, instead of them going to Europe, they licensed their technology to us. And so we came over to LA and literally with a computer took back 
the 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 technology reinstalled it in some machines so in the UK old school. and span up what was then Virgin Students. So we became the biggest student website in the UK ten years before Facebook existed. And so, um, but it was it was a funny time because the bandwidth just wasn't there. So we had all the functionality that you would expect a, a community website like that to have, but people couldn't really use it just because there wasn't the bandwidth there to to actually like upload videos, watch videos. Right. I mean, it was just, but it was definitely ahead of its time. Uh, and it was a really interesting foray into that world. And it, it taught me an enormous amount about A, working for an organization like Virgin, and B, starting your own company. Because effectively, the unit that we started was like running your own company, just backed by this incredible band, brand and money. It, it's funny that you say that you had trouble working for other people because when you when you spoke about your time in the fMRI machine and the results of the study that entrepreneurs react differently to the word no, I think one of the other big things that entrepreneurs react differently to is maybe it's that authority, but maybe it's like something that restricts our freedom. The idea mm-hmm. that we're working for a boss who's telling us, here's the creative direction you need to go in. And by the way, here's also the people you're going to work with. And here's the cap on how much money I'm going to pay you. And here's the time you need to come in on the schedule. And you're like, well, I think I have better ideas than this. You know, I think I'd rather be my own boss. And a lot of times, I think for at least entrepreneurs like myself, it's not even this, this you know, innate passion for entrepreneurship. It's almost like an inability to do anything else. It's like, I'm just not going to be able to get a nine to five job because I'm not going to listen and I'm going to be frustrated doing things somebody else's way. Well, there's a beautiful freedom to it. I mean, for a long time, my entrepreneurial journey was like a, a sort of a, an anchor in the sense that I thought that to be good as an entrepreneur meant certain things, things around how much time you'd have to commit to something that that, that you had to be all about work and not about life. <clears throat> and so for a long time, in fact, before I became successful as an entrepreneur, my belief system was very old fashioned in terms of like the sort of, sort of work hard, play hard, which I feel like is a bit of an old idea now. Uh, and that, that you have to be in early and you have to strive and you have to do this. And um, and so I would be someone who was was proud of the concept of being a workaholic and thinking that being a workaholic equals good. Because if you're a workaholic and you're really passionate about this, it's going to work out. And it wasn't until I started to realize through a number of interventions that I had from either people that I was with or people that I met or people that I brought in to, to sort of support me in my journey, um, that that was just a total nonsense. And that actually, that true freedom... And I think the entrepreneurial journey can give you true freedom. True freedom is the ability to use your uh, uh, skills to create maximum leverage. And that doesn't mean to say that you have to work long hours all the time. You could have a moment of insight that could be transformative that takes two minutes. It doesn't, I don't need to get up at 7am and start work at 7th day and work on 7th day at night to get good outcomes. That's not true. And so I found that over the last seven to 10 years, I've just got more freedom. So I'm much more free as a person. And I think that freedom I value and I relish. So, I mean, last week I was in Turkey uh, on next, two day, tomorrow I'm going to Miami. The week after that, I'm going to New York. The week after that, I'm going to Washington. The week after that, I'm going back to Mexico. I'm in Mexico right now. Um, and I've realized that actually I can have a wonderful life and create incredible outcomes and through, obviously, the fact that in a way, one of the greatest things that came out of COVID was an acceptance that physical presence is no longer required to do business. And I think that's a beautiful moment in our evolution that 
up until COVID, if I wanted to get a client who was based in San Francisco, I'd have to get on a plane to San Francisco. And they would expect me to do that, and I would expect to do that. And if I said, oh, actually, no, I'm not doing that, we'll do a video call, it was it was a lesser engagement. Now, I can, I can be sat in Turkey, and you can be sat in San Francisco, and yes, it may be very late in the evening for me, but we can have a sales call, and you will be as happy to have that call, and actually quite enjoy the fact that I'm in Turkey, rather than thinking, oh, well, this guy's over way in Turkey. And it's nuts because it's all just sort of these social, cultural norms. Like you were saying, people will just expect, like, oh, this guy must must not be serious if he's not flying over here because that's yeah. how things are done. Not because it's logical, not because it's reasonable, not because technology or the deal requires it, but because it's just how things are done. And it's very rare that anything happens at, like, a global scale that causes this sort of mass cultural shift where we all agree to change the rules. And fortunately for this situation, we change the rules for something for the better. We're like, hey, actually, it doesn't matter where people are. And it's tremendously more convenient. And I think it's also creating tremendously more business opportunities because if everybody's doing work remotely, that's a gigantic well of new problems that need to be solved, new solutions that can help things, um, I think, proceed a little bit more smoothly and grease the wheels of this new interaction. So I'm right there with you. I think it's great. I want to talk about these businesses that you started. And we don't have time to go through all 14. So maybe we'll do your first business and your most successful business and clear find. How does that sound? Cool. That sounds great. Hopefully, Clearfine will end up being the most successful business. But let's face it. <laughs> what was the what was the very first business you started? This is a bit of a cheat, really. But my first actual business I had was when I was again, as I said, my family wasn't necessarily entrepreneurial in the sense that we're talking about, but but were trying to make money for themselves. And so, as a kid, I had to work and go and do stuff, not, not like working down the mines. But I was basically it was normal to have a job. It was my pocket money came from me working, uh, and but also I was encouraged to be. I suppose to do my own thing. And so I actually had my first ever business was actually selling eggs door to door, which is very weird. Uh, it was cleverly called J Lay Eggs. Get it? <laughs> uh, and so, um, and so I, I started this business uh, and I, a farmer would deliver eggs to my house. I mean, bear in mind, I lived in the city and the farm, there were farms there by them, deliver eggs to my house. On a Friday night, I would sit packing eggs into boxes. Um, some of which had the brilliant JLA eggs brand on. Uh, and then I would go out door to door selling eggs. I mean, it was the most random thing in the world. But the one thing I'll say about it is door to door sales. I mean, I, I, Jehovah's Witnesses have to be some of the best salespeople on earth, them and the Mormons. If you can learn to sell door to door, you can sell anything to anyone because you learn how to take rejection. You learn how to. Um, and not be affected by this. You learn how to project yourself. You learn how to read someone. You learn all these incredible skills. So I, I was fortunate that I got to do that as a kid. And obviously as a kid, you've got like cute kidness on your side. So it's not quite as challenging as being a Jehovah's Witness. And that's why I think you should go and do that because that's the best sales job in the world. If you can do that, you are a genius and you should be <laughs> head of sales for Google. But uh, the, my first proper entrepreneurial job, which wasn't that, was... um. So when I was working for Virgin, as I said, we, we had this brilliant business, which was a precursor to Facebook, two, like 10 years too early. And it didn't work. It, it was a failure because the other thing that was hilarious was we were trying to sell advertising space on our website to brands. And so we, we're Virgin. And so we go up to, I don't know, let's say uh, uh, AT&T and say, hey, guys, do you want to promote your cell phones on our website? And they go, but you're Virgin Mobile, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we're Virgin Mobile, but don't worry about that. Do you want to do that? And they're like, no. And then we'd go to an American Airlines and say, hey, guys, 
you want to promote your flights on our website? So you're Virgin Atlantic, are you? Yeah, yeah, we have. Don't worry about that. It was a disaster because everyone, we competed with everybody, especially in the UK where they're more prevalent. I mean, there's Virgin Gyms, there's Virgin Active, there's Virgin White. You name it, they're in a category. So everyone we went to see were like, uh, yeah, sling it up, mate. Or they'd think we were spying on them. We'd be sat in the offices of a competitor of one of the brands and they'd be like, oh, these spies. Uh, So that was disastrous. (laughs) Anyway, but because it didn't work, the first thing at the time that I was the managing director of the company and so I I went into the office and said, look guys, this is not going to work. But what could work is if we make everyone redundant, including me, and that I take over this business and you instead become my client. And so I convinced Virgin Mobile, who'd been very supportive of that project, to instead of basically working with this Virgin company, to work with me and my own company to do the same work for them. So we became not so much of a website, but we actually entered into this area of like experiential marketing. So creating brand experiences and this is back in, I, don't know, I want to say like 2000, but that's a quite a long time ago, creating brand experiences um, where we would engage customers in a particular thing. So Virgin Mobile was our, was our then, one of our, was our first client. And I got them to pay us a year in advance so that we could cash flow the business. So I took six of the people, we all got made redundant. I took my redundancy money. I took my, the, the, the year in advance money from Virgin, which to be fair was an amazing gift. Like they did not have to do that. Uh, and then we started the business and then we started winning clients. We won like EA, we won like Jack Daniels, we won like, uh, Axe. We won some amazing brands and we became a really phenomenal, uh, experiential agency back in the day. And what did you learn from this experience that you took with you? Because obviously you shut that business down or you, you, you sold it or I something sold. happened. You sold yeah, it, sold moved it. on um, to other things. I think, I think I learned a few things. Like what I learned is um, that, that, I mean, you can make money out of anything, anything. And I think that's what's really fascinating. Like people are always looking for the idea. And I think that's a, that's a, a nonsense. I don't think there is the idea or the perfect idea or whatever. And a lot of people like stop themselves going on this journey because they're waiting for the perfect idea. And I think the reality is there is money to be made in any sector, in anything, in, in, in things that people would think would be the worst possible thing you get into. Like people still are making money right now on foreign currency transactions. Like how is that even possible? How is that even a thing? But it is a business. I know someone who started during COVID a foreign currency business in um, South America and he's making money. Turned over a million dollars last year. And he's making money. It's like, that sounds like a crazy business you enter these days. You've got TransferWise. You've got all these fintechs. What on earth is going on? And the reality is there is money everywhere. It, you just have to put your mind to it and understand what are you bringing to the party. So that's the first thing I learned. So it wasn't that I was incredibly passionate about experiential marketing. In fact, the word experiential marketing when I started the business didn't exist. It was more that I saw there was a simple transaction opportunity that I could be engaged with, that there was a creative space that I could play in where I could create things for things that I liked, which was brands. I like brands. I like supporting brands. And I could see that we could create something for a brand and that we could premiumize that. And there is a business in that. And that, I think, was one of the main lessons. I think the other thing that's interesting is just, I suppose, it's like keeping on the path. And again, like seeing when you need to make changes and not being too stuck in your ways. I think, again, one of the biggest failures that an entrepreneur can realize would be when they think that they're right all the time and they're not willing to change. And the reality is everything's super malleable and there is no truth. Like, there is definitively no truth. There is definitively no black and white. There is definitively no answers to any of this stuff. Like, 
something isn't really definitively better than anything else that just doesn't seem to exist in in the real world. It's just our perception. And so knowing that that's the case, if you get too wedded to something that you think is a truth, you can bomb your business very quickly because if the market is not responding to this idea, listen to the bloody market. And if you think about, so for example, ClearFind is a good example. So when we first started, we thought ClearFind would be about finding new tools. So we thought that people would use this data set to help them match with the tools. So instead of going out into the world and saying, well, what do I need? I've no idea. And going on to sites like G2 Crowd, which is just absolute, as far as I'm concerned, bollocks. Because it's basically, it's, re- it's reviews. It's five-star, four-star, three-star reviews. Think about this. You're in your hometown, wherever you live, or your favorite city, and you're looking for a great restaurant recommendation. And you go on to Yelp or you go into Google reviews and you say, right, I'm going to go to the best restaurant in this town and I'm going to find it because I'm going to get the place that has the most five stars. And then you turn up at McDonald's. Hooray! Because that's <laughs> what has the most five stars. Is it the best restaurant? To me, no. Right. But does it have the most five star reviews? Absolutely. And that's the problem with all these other, with people like G2 Crowd. It tells you absolute shit. Like if a, a farmer in Minnesota thinks this software is five stars and you're a CEO of Coca-Cola, how right. is that useful? <laughs> how is that useful? Yeah. But that is the way that world has worked. And so we thought, that is such nonsense. How can that be true? What if instead of this nonsense, we'll not say, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, and basically sell you advertising, which is what they do. We will tell you what to buy. We'll actually give you an answer to the question, what's the right software to me? Like black and white answer, not, not sort of ambiguous. Oh, well, it could be this one, but why do you look at this one? It's like, no, 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 it's this, buy it, simple. Totally unbiased. And so we started life there. But the, the, the interesting is, the paradigm is that people are happy with this crappy experience of getting five-star reviews. They love it. And so people are like, well, I can go on to G2 Crowd and I'll get a five star. Yeah, but it's shit. I know it's shit, but it's quick. It's like, yeah, it is quick, but it's also shit. Um, and so, and, and this was our experience that basically people just were not that bothered. And so it wasn't until we sort of saw that and heard that and our clients were saying, well, yeah, I do want to use you, but that we realized that what we need to do is to turn this thing on its head. And so what we then did is we said, oh my goodness, we have this incredible understanding of software at a feature level. What can you do with that apart from help match you? And the thing you can do, which is quite incredible, is you can look at the entirety of someone's software that they've bought for their company and tell them what software they need to remove because all the features of that software are duplicated with some other tool. And we're the only people that can do that. The only other way you would do that would be to bring in an Accenture. And interestingly, someone like an Accenture might use us now. So so that is where we ended up. And that sort of hopefully answered the question. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And I love how that ties into your learnings from your earlier businesses, which was, there are two of them, but they're in essence, two sides of the same coin. The first was, you can make money doing anything. And the second is, you got to be willing to be proven wrong by the market. You can't be sort of bullheaded and say, whatever I think is true and keep forging into to an area where you're not going to make money. And I know a lot of people who are really good at recognizing that first point. They will go into any market. They'll start anything. They can start with the worst idea on earth, and they'll be confident they can eventually make money because they'll look around and say, like, what are the problems people actually value? And they'll pivot what they're doing and eventually get to where the money is. And like that's what you've done um, with ClearFind beautifully, where essentially you built this technology, and I'm just summarizing so people don't like 
so the lesson isn't lost on people because I think a lot of people are in the situation where they're like, what I'm doing isn't working. People aren't knocking down my door to get it. They're not paying me for it. They're wishy-washy. They say it's cool, but the, you know, when push comes to shove, it's not working. And I think what you did was you said, okay, um, this problem that you thought people had, which is that like G2 sucks, the alternative sucks, turns out not to be accurate. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't actually suck for people as much as you thought it would suck or should suck. But there is another problem that people have that is valuable to them that you can help solve, which is that they're wasting billions of dollars a year on software. And I have this problem too. At Indie Hackers, it's like, I've got my budget at Stripe. We buy a lot of software. Some of it I'm probably not using and could easily be replaced. And like, I need to manage my budget because like, I want to be able to spend it efficiently. Who doesn't want to save money? Everybody wants to save money. And like, that is you doing exactly what you said in point number one, finding out where the money is in this space and then sort of pivoting your product to offer something of value. Because if people are willing to pay money for it, that means people find it valuable. People aren't throwing away their money for no reason. And so I love that you have so clearly demonstrated an example of how to go into a space, potentially guess wrong, but then still figure out you know, how to land these bigger customers who are going to be paying you these huge contracts because you're solving a real problem for them. So I got to ask, how did you get $3 million to invest in your own business? You know, Not everybody <laughs> has that kind of money to put into a business. There's definitely a culture, which I don't love, where being an entrepreneur isn't in any way correlated to making money successfully. It's more about, I think, being free and, and working for yourself. And, and to me, those things are different. I think you can be free and work for yourself and have a nice lifestyle, or you can be free and work for yourself and, and get by, or you can be free and work for yourself and struggle. But to me, to be an entrepreneur is to create something the intern is actually successful. Uh, and so I've been on a mission to do that, to realize the value that I'm not just working in order to survive, but that I am working to, to use my assets to create a disproportional leverage so that I am f- more free than I would have been. So not necessarily tied down to anything really, um, because I am able to create a successful entrepreneurial journey where I'm able to amass wealth in a way, in a conventional way. I mean, the saddest part of, I suppose, our society is that we do still have to go to work and we do still have to earn money and that we still work in a world where more money is perceived to be a good thing. Uh, And so that someone who makes 10 million a year is more successful than someone who makes 2 million a year, is more successful than someone who makes 150 grand a year, is more successful than someone who makes 30 grand a year. I'm not sure that's the way that the world should work. Um, but I've played that game for a while and been quite good at playing the game. Not as good as Jeff Bezos. He seems much better than <laughs> many other people. But and that's the other thing that's interesting, isn't it? Like you can set your sights on different things. And so for a long time, I have had this goal of, of, of generating $100 million and thinking if I had $100 million, that would be a decently successful career. And, which is interesting because obviously for most people that might be insane. And for some people, that's not a lot of money, which I think is really interesting. Like for some people who have who have less money than that would still say, well, that's not a very big goal. Money is an interesting thing in that like you, not everything has such a wide range. Like you can't be five times taller than somebody. You can't be 10 times smarter than somebody. But you can be literally a billion times richer than somebody. Like there's almost no end in sight to how much more. And so like I've had the same sort of phenomenon where it's like I've been more successful. I've hung around people who are even more successful than I ever knew because I grew up like very middle class in like the suburbs of Georgia, you know, or if you had a job paying you a hundred grand a year, you were like balling and you were on top of society. And now I know people who like, as you're saying, who laugh at a hundred million dollars who are like, oh, that's, that's cute, you know? And that's insane to me. 
And those people look have people who, who laugh at them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about living in New York. So I moved from London. So London, obviously, a capital city, obviously a little bit screwed up now by the stupidity of leaving Europe, but that's another stop topic. Um, but London is a place where you would expect it to be uh, I don't know, high performers, very competitive, all those things you expect in some capital cities. But then when I moved to New York, I, it, it reframed the concept of wealth for me. Because if you're a millionaire in New York, you're sort of poor, which is, sounds like a stupid thing to say. But if you, I don't know, make a million dollars a year, you're not well off in New York, which in any other city in the world, that doesn't make any sense. But in New York, that, Sort of makes sense because it's it's a city built on the idea that money is the the most important thing anyone can achieve in life, and that you've never got enough of it. Even if you think you have, you definitely haven't. Uh, and so that was a really interesting framing for me moving to New York and seeing that very different view of what what wealth looks like. Yeah, Paul Graham has a good article about uh, I think it's called Cities and Ambition. And he, he tells you about the different things that like the different messages that different cities send because almost every city attracts ambitious people, but they attract you for different reasons. Yeah. And so he, he says like, New York tells you above all, you should make more money. <laughs> That's the message you constantly get in New York. Boston tells you, you should be smarter, right? MIT is here. Harvard is here. Like you need to, like my friends in Boston are getting like MD, PhDs. They never feel like it's enough, right? Because it's like, you are not credentialed enough. You are not successful enough. Uh, and so... I think it's very, in a way, we can control indirectly what what we're going to strive for in life by controlling who we surround ourselves with, in part by controlling which cities that we live in, because these cities are going to feed us these messages, and it's very easy to get sucked into it. But I don't I don't want to get too far off topic. So now we're on the topic of ClearFind, which is the business you're running today, which is very cool. You went through this long period of time where you're funding the business with your you're bankrolling it yourself, you're bootstrapping it, you're not raising money from venture capitalists, you're saying I'm going to do this myself. Is that because you didn't think that it was possible for you to break into the VC networks? You mentioned earlier that they might it's, not it's like interesting. it. interesting. There's a couple of things. I think up until this business, I haven't ever bothered to get external funding. So I've, every other business I've done, I found a way to not ask for anyone else's money, pretty much. And that just gives you an enormous amount of freedom. But the interesting thing about it is it also, it creates a ceiling on the game you can play. So one of the reasons in 2017 I moved to New York was because I thought I wanted to go into a tech business. I wanted to, I wanted to play the game of, of, of VC. And so I wanted to come up with an idea that would be interesting to that audience because I could see that, especially, I mean, America has always been wonderful at creating phenomenal global brands. And it's also been wonderful at creating the phenomenon of venture capital, really. Uh, and leveraging that in a way that no other market really has still. And then, uh, and having this transfer of value where the game is effectively, can you, as the people who actually do the work, cling on to enough equity to make it worthwhile? And I always think that in my mind, there's like a, a chart that just has a, a simple line on it, which is basically like, um, how much money would you have made if you'd not got VC money? And where does that intersect with the VC money piece? Uh, and so you're always, trying to race, if you go for VC money, you're racing against the, that moment so that you end up better off having spent five to 10 years working for them and yourself than you would have if you'd spent the same five to 10 years doing it yourself. And so if you spent 10 years on a business and you could get it to turn over 10 or 20 million, then you've got a business that's potentially worth 100 million, let's say. 
and you own all of it. Or you can go to VCs and you'll try and get to a business that's worth a billion dollars, but will you own a hundred millions worth of it at the end? And that, for me, has been the reason I've been so reticent. And so the reason I've self-funded up until now has been because I wanted to make sure that the inflection point that we brought in the funding was sufficiently high that I knew that I was getting leverage that was beyond the leverage I would have got by funding it myself. And what's been really fascinating as I've gone down this path is to see that it's like the art world. If you know anything about the art world, and I know very little, you don't, you don't become an artist that's sold in galleries unless you went down a certain path. You have to go to the certain school. You have to have a certain agent. And then you get into the certain galleries. And then you get into that scene. It is a rigged game. And if you are the best artist in the world, but you don't play by the rules, you will not break into it. And it's exactly the same with VC. It's completely a rigged game. So they don't want you to break the rules. They like the rules as they are. And so in a way, for it to work, what you have to do is they oh, fuck. They still want to basically get their bite of the cherry as if I hadn't put $3 million in because the game doesn't work when you put in your own money like that. That's not how you play. And so I think if anything, and this is what I was saying, if you're out there thinking about starting your own business, go and get them. If you want to play the VC game, play it from the start because the only way to play is why things like, um, why come on here? They are the perfect example. It's a rigged game from the start. You go to them, they take a percentage, but because you went to them and they took a percentage, then you get investors from these people. It is a completely rigged game. You do not have to have a good product to do that. You have to play the game. And if you can play the game and you go through that channel, you'll potentially do better than someone who's got a far better product who didn't play that game. And so it's, I think it's, it's important that people understand that that's all it is. It's a totally different game that you could lose as well, just like anything. And you have to be cognizant of it. What I've always said to my, I said to the guys, when I start my next business after this one, I'm going to play the game from the start with their money because I wanted to see what happens. And it's going to be interesting to play that game in a different way. Um, interestingly, I am a VC as well, so which is funny. <laughs> so I'm a general partner in my own fund with some really fabulous guys. We invest in fintech, and I, it, it's so great to be able to be in the position of both liking and loathing myself um, in that role. <laughs> uh, and I think, and I, I think there's a there is a need for a change in the industry. I don't know when it'll come because the industry is fucked right now. It doesn't make any sense. And, and most people lose from it, but but the way the industry is geared, it doesn't it doesn't long term make sense. Uh, yes, some people make a lot of money, but the whole thing is slightly skewed in the wrong way, uh, and I don't think it incentivizes the right behaviors as it stands. I could talk to you about VC forever. Uh, we only got we only got like ten minutes left, so let's talk about your company because. <laughs> well, let me ask you one more question about being a VC, which is: Do you think that as a VC, you wouldn't invest in somebody in your position who's put a lot of money into their company? If you see that the numbers are there, that they're growing rapidly, that there is a market, that they have an opportunity to get really big. Yeah, well, what I find interesting is, I suppose, my in my naivety, I suppose as, as an entrepreneur, I am a risk taker in a sense. The, the interesting thing is I think entrepreneurs perceive risk differently. I don't think entrepreneurs enter into ventures that they perceive to be high risk. But from the outside their activities look high risk. Like you were surprised that I put 3 million of my money into this business because that seems like a risk. To me, it doesn't feel like a risk. And that's where our perception of the same exact thing is very different. 
But what I've been really disappointed in is the actual risk threshold of VC is very low. They basically want you to be already winning, be on the way to a, an amazing market, have all these customers, and then they'll put the money in. It's like, but hang on, if you do that, I, can, I don't need your fucking money at that point. I can just go to a bank and borrow it. But that's sort of what they want to do. And I think that is so interesting because I assumed that venture capital was more like adventure. And it's, <laughs> it's much more like, it's more like just, it's funny because all, most of the bets don't work out. But the, the, the current metrics for what success looks like are very simplistic. And it's just like, well, look, if someone's doing these things, that must be good. And that's the, the metric that we will judge them by. Instead of saying, if we put our investment here, we can push these guys into this position, which will mean that they will then fulfill this potential. Instead of saying, well, look, you need to fulfill the potential before we put our money in, which is just, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's the risk. That's where the risk comes in. So with ClearFind, obviously you put in all, all this money and you're confident. How do you deploy that money? You put $3 million in a company. How do you ensure that you're spending on the right things? You know, how much of that goes to engineering? How much of that goes to advertising or marketing? You know, like, do you deploy that in stages? Do you do an MVP? What did it look like with ClearFind? Yeah, I think the answer is you can never know if you do the right things. Um, you can never know, except in hindsight, if the decisions you made were the right decisions. It's impossible. So that you've got to get that out of your head straight away. Because if you go down that path, you'll just not do anything. Uh, and so what we have done is we've basically deployed that over the course of two and a half years. So it's not been a ma- massive dump of cash in. It's been over the course of, and it's basically finding things that we think make sense and betting on those things a little bit. And so I'm saying, look, if we pump more money into this, is it going to do this? So yes, it's been spent on engineering. Yes, it's been spent on research. Um, some of it's been spent on marketing. Some of it's been spent on branding. Um, but a lot of it has been spent on just finding out how to crack this problem. So research and development, to be honest with you. Right. Um, what, was the, what was the very first thing you spent money on? The very first thing we spent money on was my... So I haven't got paid yet. Obviously, it would be a bit weird to pay the business and then take the money out myself. It doesn't make any sense. So the first... So whereas my co-founder does, has a salary. So the first thing that we spent money on was my co-founder uh, and her salary. Um, and then our head of engineering and his salary. And again, they're both at below market salary because of the nature of uh, the venture. But that was the first thing we started to spend money on. And it, it's basically spending money on talent is the key to, to really getting a successful business. And I think not spending money as much as possible, especially in the early stages on third parties and external companies, because there's lots of, there's a whole industry that's set up around taking money off small companies and startups to try and help them. But not all of them, most of them, even though their intentions are good, I'm not sure that that, that money is best deployed with those third parties. It, it's probably better to spend it on internal talent who have a real vested interest and a real passion about the project than spend it on third parties who for you, for them, you are a contract that they yeah. want to make a marginal. Yeah. And you have this, this sort of path where in the beginning, it was mostly about figuring out how to solve this problem. So that's building the right software that you think is going to solve the right problem. And then actually trying to sell to customers, discovering that they don't care about that problem. And then where do you go from here? You have two things you need to do, basically. Build different software that's going to solve a different problem. And then also like you know identify what that problem is and try to see if people are going to buy it. How did you do that second part? Because I think most people listening don't have that much trouble building. Like most of us are builders. We could put things together, even if it's like sloppy and crappy, like we'll figure it out. But like, how do you even take it to customers and be like, 
would you pay for this? What happened is, as I said, we, we, to give the real, real world example, we'd had this experience where we tried to go to market and we brought on this board of these amazing like, advisors and they were all like from top, top, top companies and they were all like working with us on the development of the search product. And so it was so funny at the end of that process that none of them bought it. I'm like, hey, you guys fucking helped us create it. What the fuck? But anyway, they were like, oh, no, it's amazing. It's am- we- Oh, it's fantastic. And it's like, yeah, cool, then buy it. But then we started to see these signals. And we were very, very, very fortunate to have started a dialogue with one of the biggest tech companies in the world and come across an insightful individual in that company who loved what we were doing and had been talking to us about the search thing. But it was that individual in a meeting in, say, September, where they said, look, the search thing we like, but what about this? You've got this amazing data on features. Surely you can look at what I've already bought and tell me what to do with it. And we're like, yeah, whatever. And we left the meeting. We totally ignored him. And then when we started to struggle, which was a few weeks later, we like, what was like, what did that guy say in that mean? Do you remember what he said? It's not about using our data differently. And then we're like, oh my God. So... We then thought, fuck this, we've spent so much money getting to where we are, we need to get on and do this. And so we had a a management meeting, let's say at 11 a.m. And I had a sales call about the old product at one. And I just said, look, I'm going to go on that sales call and sell him this new idea. I'm just going to do it. And so I got on the call and I said, look, I've got, we've got this amazing thing I'm actually going to show you, but how would you feel if instead of basically just telling you what new software you could get, we could look at all the software you had and tell you what you need to keep and remove. And he goes, oh, I love that idea. I said, great, give me a week and I'm going to come back to you. So a week later, I went back to him with some wireframes. I said, look, this is what it looks like. And he says, great. And then a week later, I went back to him again and said, this is a product. And he bought it there and then. And so it was, I just think you don't need anything to sell someone on something. Now, obviously, to close them, you may need something. But to get them to the point where they can sort of get into your head and understand what you're saying, you don't need even a working product. Um, you need just the idea of how it will work and the confidence and understanding to express that to someone. So if you could go back in time, like how, how would you prevent, you know, that, that period of time where you didn't know what people wanted? Would you have asked different questions to your customers? Would you have tried to sell oh, them? I don't before know. It's like very it? interesting because as I said, we, we, we thought we were doing that and we really did work with this like advisory board of people from all these companies for months. It wasn't like we did it for a week or an hour. We did it every week for months. I've been there though. That's why I asked this question. We're like, I'm pretty sure I'm doing the right things. I yeah. think I'm talking to my customers. I think that I'm building something that they're going to pay for and then been wrong. Been wrong. Yeah, I, I think, I think it's probably, there's two things that I think are really important. Like one is not to hold on to ideas too tightly. And I think we'd got very, even though I said it earlier on this conversation that you shouldn't, I think I got quite wedded to this idea that it was so much better than my, my disgust at G2 Crowd's existence was so potent that um, I think it drove a passion in our solution that was disproportionate to that of our customer. And on the other side, I think you have to be like always listening. And I think it's easy for people to say listening. And what people normally think of as listening is just like being quiet a bit while the other person's speaking. <laughs> What's normally happening is that you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, oh, actually, I need to make a note about this. And oh, actually, it's interesting what you said there. Let me make a note about this. And oh, actually, what am I going to have for lunch? And, and you're just not actually fucking listening. Yes, you're not talking, but you're not listening. And when you listen, you hear things. And I know that sounds like a trite thing to say. I don't mean it in a trite way. I mean, you can be struck by insights 
inside the conversation, either in the words explicitly or implied by the way that they're talking, that can then help you. So we literally had a client tell us what to do and we ignored them because we weren't willing to listen. The client literally told us what to do. And weeks, weeks passed before we realized what they'd said because we were not there. We were there to sell them our tool. We were not there to hear them improve our tool. We were not there to hear new ideas about our tool. We were there to sell them our tool. And so I, I think the thing that I would do differently, and I know this, and I knew it before, I just forgot, was actually fucking listen to people when yeah. they're talking to you. It's simple to listen, but it's not easy yeah. to listen. It's a simple idea. It's not easy to execute. So where do you go from here? You're, you're raising money. Uh, you want to make this bigger. How does it get bigger? Do you just ramp up sales now that you have the, rest, the best product? And, and how do you even do that? Because you're selling something that no one's... No one has, this doesn't exist. No one has ever bought software that's going to tell them what to so stop. So we are very fortunate in that we have, we are a small sales team. You're looking at him. And um, again, I, I'm always trying to leverage. And I think it comes from having real businesses that make money. And again, this is no disrespect to VC, but most of the businesses they have don't make money. I'm used to businesses that actually make money. And so I've, I've been someone who through that experience has learned a lot about how to make a little bit of money go a long way. Uh, and I think those skills are invaluable in many ways. They're very different skills from VC backed businesses. They don't look at things in a similar way, but. What it has meant is I've tried to leverage. So I'm one person. I can only reach so many people. So how can I help ClearFind reach more people? Well, channel partners. Channel partners aren't typically a VC solution. VCs don't love channel partners. VCs like you to go out there and sell all individual people. One, They'd rather you sell to 100,000 people something for a dollar than sell to one person something for $100,000. That's just not the way they think about the world. I get it. But channel partners are an incredibly potent tool if you get them right. And actually, as VC-backed businesses grow, they end up going to channel partners because it's the way you actually grow. But they don't always start there. But with ClearFind, we've started there. And so we are very fortunate to have an exclusive arrangement, which is soon to be launched in the media, so I can't say who it's with. But it's with one of the world's largest resellers of software. And we are now using their incredible brand and sales team to get into clients that we would have taken a long time to get into. We have another relationship with a leading like top five um, consulting firm. And those guys are using our platform to talk to their customers. So suddenly this little man here has now got a multi-thousand strong sales organization behind him. And so we're going to probably end the year doing between two and three million dollars of revenue this year, even though we started selling last year. So for, for any company, VC back to not, to go from no sales to three million dollars in less than 12 months is really good. Thanks to a channel partner strategy, which is the complete right. antithesis of the way you would normally do it with VC money. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, maybe I'll close on this question then because that's, that's so useful and it's super impressive you're doing this by yourself. Most people listening are inexperienced. Uh, like you, they're just one person, but they don't have a team of people around them. And so they have to do everything. And so they'll do the coding, they'll do you know all the sort of operational stuff, and they need to sit down and do the sales. And that scares the hell out of a lot of people. How do I sell something to anyone? Jehovah's Witnesses, hire them. <laughs> hire some Jehovah's Witnesses, but if you can't do that and you've got to be a founder and do it all on your own, what do you think people listening should should take away from what you've learned? How can they learn how to reach out to partners and have these calls and 
you know, potentially either sell their product or, or learn what they're doing wrong the way that you have? I think, again, the listening thing comes into it a lot. It's very easy for people to think that selling is about talking. And I think selling is about listening. If you really want to sell to someone, then you have to hear them. You have to let them speak about their problems. Let them share with you their pain points. Let them express where they see you fitting into their current roadmap, strategy, day. And give them the chance to talk to you. Because I think people think that you go onto a sales call and you bring your deck or whatever the hell, or you bring your demo and you just talk at someone. The most successful sales calls I've ever had are where you say very little and you get them to tell you what's going on in their world and why it's useful. Because the, the other thing that's interesting is like one of the nice questions you can ask at the top of the call is, given that everyone is busy, like I don't think anyone goes to work as like, oh, I've got a lot of time today. What shall I do? Might as well do some demos. That's not <laughs> the way the world works. So they've made a time in their day to see you. So something you said in your email, in your whatever, resonated with them. And what I like to start with is say to them, look, be honest, like, hey, you're busy. You've got a lot going on in your world. Why do you make the time to see me today? Let them tell you that. And that then is the beautiful hook into their pain point. Because for whatever reason, something resonated in something you sent them and they made time in their diary. And if you're now just willing to listen, they will tell you how to close them. James Layfield, thanks so much for coming on Indie Hacker, sharing your story, sharing your wonderful advice and lessons. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about what you're up to and about what's going on with ClearFind? Definitely. So james at clearfind.com or just find me on LinkedIn. Um, I think it's just James Layfield. All right. Thanks again, James. Thank you.